Thank you, Amber. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter, excuse me, uh, Acts chapter 1. Luke wrote this book, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where we'll be reading. We're going to celebrate the ascension this morning. The ascension happened 40 days after the resurrection, including that Sunday, and ascension day was Thursday. And we'll be celebrating that here in just a minute as we look at Acts chapter 1. But before that, I've got a couple of things I want to uh, mention to you. First of all, another prayer request. It's a special request. Um, our friend Randy Click, who is missionary to the uh, homeless street people there in uh, Colorado, uh, really requests our prayers. I spent some time with him last Sunday afternoon. He came into Magnolia the last couple of days of February. His intention was to stay a couple of three weeks for some speaking engagements then go back to Colorado. About time he was wrapping up his time here, the governor closed Colorado, and uh, Texas closed, Oklahoma closed, and the virus pretty much shut down the country, and he was pretty much stuck in Magnolia. Now, although Magnolia is his hometown, and he loves Magnolia, his heart is in Colorado, uh, and he is trying to uh, shoot for June the 1st, traveling back to Colorado, does not know exactly what's left uh, of the ministry there, what the restrictions are on the uh, uh, homeless shelter where he ministers and how the apartment complex is, uh, is affected by all this. He doesn't know, but he's wanting to get back to his mission work. So I ask you to be in prayer for him as he uh, anticipates traveling back uh, to his ministry in Colorado. Also, let me mention this. Uh, this, of course, is Memorial Day weekend. It starts the summer. Uh, it's kind of like the bookend of summer. On the front is Memorial Day. On the back end of summer is Labor Day. We have those uh, Monday holidays. Memorial Day is much more than just a summer holiday. It is where we commemorate those in our country who have died in the service. And, of course, if you look at the numbers, uh, we have... A lot of people who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. I want to look just for a few minutes at modern history, uh, and that is since World War II. I start there because I know that some of our people were affected by World War II. Some of our older members have family members that passed away during World War II. Some of you may not be as old, remember an uncle uh, or some other family member, in World War II, 405,399 servicemen lost their lives. There would be servicemen and women. These are combat deaths as well as other deaths that weren't on the uh, battlefield. Shortly thereafter, 1948, if you remember the Berlin blockade, where we begin, of course, to try to counteract Russia's closing off of Berlin, 31 service members lost their lives. Immediately after that, Korea. They call that the Forgotten War. 36,516 lost their lives. After that began a lengthy Cold War. There was not combat through that whole time, but from 1947 to 1991, we had a Cold War. Actually, 48 service members lost their lives. After that was Beirut. You remember back in the early 80s, 1983, there was a bombing and that bombing, as well as other action, took 266 lives. Shortly thereafter, in 1990-91, over in Kuwait, the Gulf War, we call it, 
294 lives lost. Then there was Somalia, 43 lives lost. Bosnia, 12 lives lost. Kosovo, 18 lives lost. Afghanistan, 2,216 lives lost. Iraq, 4,497 lives lost. Through all of these conflicts, skirmishes, uh, and wars, 507,518 military deaths service members who lost their lives. Now, for each of these, there was a spouse, parents, siblings, friends, churches, and communities mourned. So the number affected by what we commemorate on Memorial Day, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have been affected. So we honor the families of these who have lost loved ones in war. We honor the lives of those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Now we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven." What an unforgettable event. This event happened, of course, 40 days after the resurrection, and this is a memorable event. This is an unforgettable event. But the details in, of course, Luke's account of the event are equally unforgettable. We have some unforgettable, memorable truths that are outlined in some of the smallest details. Luke chose his words carefully. We do not want to lose the meaning. And something is seemingly insignificant as the summary of his former work. He said, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. This former account is talking about the book of Luke. Theophilus is mentioned in the introduction in the book of Luke. And what he does is he's telling Theophilus, You've received this former account, but there's more. And then he begins to give the events in the book of Acts. 
But notice he chose his word. He did not say the former account I made of what Jesus did and taught. He said the former account I made of all Jesus began to do and teach. And what that says is this, Theophilus, you think that the first book was good? That's just the start. Jesus is just beginning his work. And what he started that you read about in the Gospel of Luke, now you see what he continues in the book of Acts. Some people like to know, where, where do I start to read the Bible? If you've never read the Bible before, a good way to start is this. Go to the book of Luke, read through the book of Luke, and then start in the book of Acts. That gives you the history of the apostles in the ministry of Jesus. Then it gives you the history of the church after Jesus left. The whole uh, picture of what God is doing in this world. But he said, specifically, Jesus just started these things in the gospel of Luke. And now we see that he continues to work. Secondly, we see some details in the summary of the time after the resurrection. We continue on with the opening verses. The former account, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. He was taken up after he gave commandments to the apostles. So we understand the time immediately before Jesus was taken up, it says he gave commandments or instructions to the apostles. That depends, of course, what English translation. However, if you look at the original Greek, this original Greek for commandments or instructions, this expression is used again in a parable of Jesus. So to get the whole detail of what Luke is saying, we turn back to the book of Mark chapter 13, and it's a very familiar parable because Jesus mentions this same idea several different times in several different parables. But in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, this, is, of course, is familiar of what we just read in the book of Acts. But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. You do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Quite interestingly, it says, he gave to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. That word commanded is the same Greek word from which we get the term when he gave commandments to the apostles. What was he doing? He was given instructions, a very similar situation. The master's going away. And he's leaving them with the responsibility to continue his work. It says he gave commandments or he gave instructions. He gave a charge to the uh, doorkeeper. The same word. But notice the detail. To each his work. He gave something for everyone to do. And so, of course, immediately before he went away, the householder outline the responsibilities 
for his servants. And immediately before Jesus went away, he outlined his responsibilities for those who would be involved in the kingdom work. So he gave them some instructions, and then he presented many infallible proofs of his resurrection. This is important, because they would go forth from there and preach a risen Christ. Therefore, they had to be convinced without a doubt that Jesus Christ was indeed alive. The verb structure here is it was a repeated action. It happened over and over again that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many, many infallible proofs. Now, the word infallible proofs, uh, convincing demonstration. The Greek word means unquestionable evidence. They were presented with unquestionable evidence, infallible proof, convincing demonstration. They never wavered when they went forth on the day of Pentecost and following concerning Jesus Christ is risen and they preached the resurrection in every sermon that we have mentioned, uh, especially on the day of Pentecost. So he presented many infallible proofs. He showed them that he is indeed alive. He says he was speaking to them concerning the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What did he do while he was presenting himself alive to them? He spoke to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. He wanted to be sure they knew. Now, this is not a new thing. Over 11 times in the Gospels, you will know that Jesus introduced a parable by saying, the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, what shall I compare the kingdom of heaven to? How is it? And then he would go into a parable, and the parable would not have to do with heaven. The parable would not have to do with a military or a political kingdom. The parable would have to do with an everyday event, an everyday event that spoke to our everyday lives. And the summary would be of that parable that our lives should be under the control and direction of God. The kingdom of God is that realm in which God is in control, and we are under the authority of God. So therefore, we realize when he spoke to them concerning the kingdom of God, he was not talking just about the sweet by and by. He was talking about the here and now that we have to deal with and how we deal with that. But there's another summary, and Luke overlaps his gospel and the account in the book of Acts with this summary about what did, what did he tell them about after the resurrection? Back in Luke chapter 24 at the closing verses of his book. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, this is the defter and the days following the resurrection. He said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. Now why is that important? How else are we going to communicate the kingdom of God except through the word of God? That's the place where we determine the kingdom and the will of God. He opened their understanding that they may understand the scriptures. Then he nails it down. He said to them, Thus it is written, thus it was 
necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. What did he do? Spoke to them concerning the kingdom of God, giving them the biblical perspective. He looked at the past, the scriptures. God had said hundreds of years before that these things would happen. Well, he said a little bit more than that. He said these things should happen. It is necessary that Christ would suffer and raise again the the third day. This was all part of God's plan. This was God's kingdom work. And God, being in control, being in charge, worked his plan according to his prophecy hundreds of years before. So as Jesus Christ presented to them the kingdom work, he presented to them the biblical framework of what they would be preaching. But then it goes a little bit further. And that repentance and the remission of sins would be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, now catch that. He spoke concerning the scriptures. And it was necessary, according to Old Testament scriptures, for, first of all, that Jesus would suffer and be raised again. But that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name to all nations. The Old Testament speaks about the Great Commission. This is not a a New Testament development. This is an Old Testament prophecy and an Old Testament charge to the people of God. Several passages of scripture in Isaiah chapter 49. It speaks, of course, concerning the work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 49 In verse 6, this was 700 years before the words that we read in the book of Luke and Acts. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That's too small of a thing. He says, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation, watch this, to the end of of the earth. Now, when Jesus said something about a witness to the end of the earth, that's not the first time that expression had been made. To the ends of the earth, that described the work of the Messiah that would come, that he would be a light to the Gentiles, no barriers, and that you would be salvation to the end of the earth. Well, there is the prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. But if you remember, It says that Jesus spoke of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Look in the 96th Psalm, verse 1. Ninety-sixth Psalm, verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and his wonders among all people. Say among the nations in verse 10, the Lord reigns. Did you catch what he said? This is in the book of Psalms. These are the words of David. Declare the glory of his salvation from day to day and declare his glory among what? All nations. And all people. You remember, of course, what we call the Great Commission. 
in the book of Matthew chapter 28. And this, of course, is Matthew's rendition of the instructions that Jesus gave. You go make disciples of all nations. And Jesus said, you go to the ends of all the earth. These are the things concerning the kingdom of God that he spoke to them. And if we're going to be about the kingdom work, and if we're going to really be a part of the kingdom of God, then our life's work must include the Great Commission and reaching out to the ends of the earth. So we have then, of course, the summary of their final moments with Jesus before he left. First of all, in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. It's quite interesting, this word being assembled together with them. The word being assembled together is a figure of speech in the, old, in the Greek language. It literally means at the sharing of salt. That was a figure of speech that meant when you sit down at a meal with someone. And Luke was quite deliberate with this. He spoke, of course, concerning the time between the resurrection and the ascension that Jesus Christ regularly shared a meal with them. Now, why is that important? Because sharing a meal is a time of extreme fellowship, of extreme communication, a close time together, family ties. So we understand this is speaking of the days between the resurrection and the ascension, not necessarily the immediate moments because there was someone somewhere else at the Mount of Olives at verse 12, if you'll notice. But throughout the time of those days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus Christ would assemble with them. He would gather them together and he would speak to them. Then he gave them a promise. He promised that the Holy Spirit would come. In verse 5, he said, John truly baptized with water. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This was not something new. Jesus Christ spoke of the Holy Spirit repeatedly throughout his ministry. And especially in the book of John, he spoke about the Spirit would empower them. The Spirit would indwell them. The Spirit would enlighten them. He said, He'll bring to remembrance the things I've told you. They would need that. The Spirit would direct them. The Spirit would comfort them and encourage them. The word comforter means one who comes alongside to help. And all of this was not to call to attention the apostles, not to call the attention to the Holy Spirit, but he said the Holy Spirit will glorify me. All of this is to exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. Christ. So when he spoke about the Holy Spirit, they knew what the Holy Spirit would be all about. He had told them about that. And he said this, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Obviously, they were going to Jerusalem. They were leaving. They were going. He said, you need to go ahead and go to Jerusalem and stay there. That's where it will happen. And then, of course, they asked him a question. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. You see, their question involved a big plan. And the big plan was they knew or they felt when the Messiah would come, their idea of the kingdom of heaven is that Israel would be the ruler of the world. 
and that Israel would be exalted to a glorified position in a day of glory and be throw off the military and all of the other oppressive nations that were there. They spoke of a political kingdom. And they spoke, of course, of a national kingdom. And Jesus said, you've got to expand your vision. Because the vision I have and the work I have involves much more than Israel. You remember the passage in Isaiah? It's too small for you to be just involved with Jacob. Your salvation will be to the ends of the earth. Of course, Jesus said, if you're going to be in my work, you need to expand your vision. Your vision has to be expanded. It's not just a political kingdom with Israel. It's much bigger than that. It would be a worldwide mission to the ends of the earth. And here's the plan. Start here. This is where you are. You'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that we all have to travel to Jerusalem to start our mission work or our, our evangelistic work or our witness for Christ. It means where we are. Right here is where we start. Now, some will stay here. Some will stay, and this is where they work for their mo most of their life. In fact, most people will stay. When they are called to be a believer in Jesus Christ, they are to be witnesses where we live. And if God chooses for us to stay in this community, we are to be witnesses in this community from now on. But some will go. Some will go to the neighboring areas, to all Judea. That was just in the immediate area. And in all Samaria. Now, Samaria was close geographically, but it was miles away truly. What he said is this, you don't just go to people who are like you, you go to people who are different, and you go to people who do not like you, because the Samaritans and the Jews didn't necessarily like each other, and he specifically said, you go to those people who are different from you, and then he says, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Some will stay, some will go this far, and then some will go to the uttermost regions of the earth, but all will be witnesses. And here's the beautiful part. Even those of us that stay, we can be a part of the worldwide mission of God to send the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world by partnering with those who will go. I think all of you know, if you're familiar with our church, we have several missionary partners all over the world. And one of them is Brother Jeremy Hambrice and his family, who several years ago, he gave up a career in pro baseball to surrender to the gospel ministry, specifically to the mission work. And his burden was the people of Papua New Guinea. Now, you can't find another place on the planet that could be described as the uttermost part of the earth. Geographically, it's a long way from here. But also culturally and in te technology. These, these folks still live in villages, in huts, you can't get there except by a plane unless you hike for hours and days even to get to these villages. Well, these people begin to appeal saying, when will somebody come to give us the big talk? And they were asking about someone to come and talk to them about Jesus Christ. Brother Jeremy Hambrice and his mission team went deep into the heart of Papua New Guinea. And they realized these people didn't even have the Bible translated into their language. In fact, these people didn't even have a written language. So they began to develop a written language for these people and then to translate the Bible into that language. Now here's where we can get involved. 
on June 1st, on June 1st, just a week from Monday, history will be made in the kingdom of God because they will finally, after all the preparation, begin to teach the Wantakia people the big talk. They will start at 7.30 in the morning. So these folks will have time to work their gardens through the day. That was their idea. Teach us the big talk. We'll come early in the morning. Five days a week they will meet and he will present to them the gospel. Then at night they will have small groups and begin to expand on that. Who will lead the small group? The small group leaders would be some of the native people who have newly learned their written language. So they will be listening and hearing the gospel for the first time. This may take three months because they have to introduce to these people who God is. And then they have to introduce the history of God and the history of the Messiah and introduce them to Jesus Christ. And they're anxious to hear. They are so anxious to hear that the village leader said, we'll donate a piece of ground for you so you can build a teaching hut. And we want to build a teaching hut. That's where the, the, the teaching will take place. The ground that they chose is right in the middle of the village. You can't interact in the village without going right by the teaching hut. And it is right at the end of the soon-to-be-formed airstrip where anybody who comes and goes from the outside world will be introduced to the fact that God is at work here in the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm thankful that we're a part of that in Bristol Baptist Church. We have our work here, and let's not drop the ball on that. But also we have our work and we can be a part of the uttermost parts of the world. We don't want to miss out on that. If you're talking about the kingdom of God in your life, the kingdom of God in our life involves mission work here and all over the world. So that's the summary of the final moments. And then we have two powerful pictures that I want to leave you with. First of all, the undeniable evidence of the deity of Christ. The apostles had seen Jesus do some miraculous thing. The fish and the bread, the blind could see, the deaf could hear, the lame man jumped up, took up his bed and walked. And then, of course, Lazarus, the lepers healed. But now here's one more thing he left them with. It says, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. It was unmistakable. They were looking right at him. And it says he was taken up. He defied gravity. Now, at that day and time, that was crucial because nobody had mashed height. You didn't have balloons. You didn't have kites. You didn't have anything. And for Jesus Christ just to be taken up. And he was taken up to the point while they watched him as he went up until a cloud, probably the cloud of glory of God Almighty, removed him out of their sight. And so they left with a very powerful picture. Not only were they serving the risen Christ, they were serving God Almighty because deity, God, suspended the laws of gravity and went back up to heaven. Jesus said he would do that. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. He said he would go back to the Father. And now he does that. But then, of course, we have an unmistakable promise. Those two things he left undeniable evidence of his deity, and then an unmistakable promise. They're looking up, probably just in awe of what they had just seen, and I can't blame them. They're looking up to maybe see if they could catch another glimpse of him. And then two men stood by them in white apparel. 
no doubt angels, messengers. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you see him go. Yes, Jesus was taken up into heaven. And he left us here to do his work. But folks, he's coming back. He's coming back. We have promise. We don't know when. Jesus himself said, we don't know when. It's in the hands of the Father. But the promise is that he's coming back. Now, the question is, and Jesus spoke about this in the parables, he's coming back. That's not in question. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready when Jesus comes back? Now, he can come back to take us home in death, or he can come back and take us up at the, at the resurrection. But Jesus Christ is coming back. Are you ready? Do you know Jesus is your Savior? Perhaps you're here and you know Jesus is your Savior, but you're not ready because you've dropped the ball on the kingdom of God. This is a good time for us to look at the ascension of Christ as we celebrate it. And look at that promise. The Master's coming. Don't let him find us sleeping. Let's be awake. Let's be active. Let's be ready in the work of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we celebrate the ascension of Christ today. But Father, he left us instructions before he left. May we as individuals and we as a church be committed to the kingdom of God, the work of the kingdom of reaching others for Christ. People close by, people far away, <clears throat> we ask that we would be concerned about reaching them with the true message of the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the power of the gospel. And we take comfort and courage in this. We'll accomplish your work. Father, we just want to be a part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And may God bless you today.